I've got to confess, uh, sometimes rules bore me. Sometimes I've just got no desire to read the terms and conditions, to understand the fine print, especially when I don't think it's really all that important to me. Uh, Now, a classic example of what I'm talking about here is when I download some piece of new software onto my computer. Uh, I follow the download instructions until I come to the terms and conditions section and there's that little checkbox down the bottom that says, yes, I have read and understood the terms and conditions. At best, I confess, I I quickly scroll the text so that all my, you know, my eyes sort of glances over all the words so that I can tick that box with some degree of integrity. At worst, I confess, I just tick the box and off I go, merrily on my way. Now, am I alone in this? Come on, am I alone in this? No, I don't think so. Well, unfortunately, I think many Christians seem to have that same kind of attitude towards the Old Testament laws, the laws that God gave to Israel before they entered the Promised Land. I think many Christians today have a tendency to think about those laws as, well, you know, a bit boring, a bit bit irrelevant for us as New Covenant Christians And so I think many of us Christians today have a tendency to avoid reading the laws or we read them but we don't actually think deeply about them. But you know, that attitude to the law is just so different to the one that we see in, say, Psalm 119. Um, Listen to how the writer of Psalm 119 describes the law of God. He describes it this way. He says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your statutes are wonderful Therefore, I obey them. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. But do you get the idea? The psalmist, he loves God's law, doesn't he? He he sees them as a treasure and he loves pondering them. But why? Well, because he recognises that these laws represent more than just some legal document, he recognises that they are a gift from God. And so notice he describes the law as your statutes, your precepts, your ways, your decrees, your word, your laws, your commands. Do you see the psalmist is, in, is enthralled with the law because, because it reflects the God who gave it. He looks at the beauty of the law and he sees in it the the beauty of God. Now, to help you appreciate God's law more, what I want to do now is I want to read to you a prayer. But it's not a prayer from God's people to Yahweh. Instead, it's an ancient prayer written by a Sumerian man who who lived in what is now southern Iraq. uh, He he lived around the same time as, as Moses. Uh, This man is suffering in some way, but he doesn't know what he's done to deserve it. Now, just, just listen, just listen to some of his prayer here. He prays, 
May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. May the goddess who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. In ignorance I have eaten that forbidden by my God. In ignorance I have set foot on that prohibited by my goddess. Oh God whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. Oh goddess whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The transgression that I have committed, indeed I do not know. The sin that I have done, indeed I do not know. The forbidden thing that I have eaten, indeed I do not know. The prohibited place on which I have set foot, indeed I do not know. The Lord in the anger of his heart confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me become ill. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. O my God, merciful one, I address to you the prayer ever inclined to me. I kiss the feet of my goddess. I crawl before you. How long, O my goddess, whom I know or do not know, before your hostile heart will be quieted? Man, he's dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. O God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. O goddess, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions and I will sing your praise. Well, what a pathetic and sad prayer that is. Don't you agree? Sad and pathetic. Notice that this man doesn't even know which God or goddess he's offended, let alone what the offence is. Or what it will take to satisfy that God. So you see, friends, it's against this this backdrop of, of divine ignorance that God, through Moses, gives the Israelite people laws which graciously reveal with perfect clarity who he is and what he expects and how sin can be removed and how a relationship of peace maintained. Do you get it? Do you see now why the psalmist loves the laws of God? Because thanks to them, he doesn't have to guess who God is, what he wants. God has revealed it all. So for him, it's a great privilege to ponder the law of God. And friends, I think that we here today need to learn to look upon the Old Testament laws with that same kind of attitude. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, we Christians are no longer under the authority of the law in quite the same way that the Israelites were. But we've seen that the law is nevertheless our our pedagogos. Do you remember this term? Our pedagogos or or our, our, our tutor. The law is now our tutor who first of all points us to Jesus as the one who perfectly fulfilled God's law. And secondly, our tutor who who now provides us with principles by which to live. So we can now live in a way that pleases God as Christians. 
And so, friends, all this to say, we cannot afford to treat the Old Testament laws like the terms and conditions that pop up on your screen when you're installing some new software. We can't afford to just ignore them. We can't afford to just let our eyes sort of glance over them without actually giving them much thought. We can't afford to see them as unimportant or irrelevant. For us to do that would be to impoverish our understanding of God and of His Son and of how He now wants us to live. Okay then, with all this in mind, with all this in mind, let's now get into today's passage from Deuteronomy. If you don't already have Deuteronomy chapter 23 open in front of you, can I encourage you to turn with me there now, grab a Bible, Deuteronomy 23, it's page 142 of the small print or 310 of the large print Bibles. Today we're going to be covering chapters 23 to 25. And in these three chapters, there are many, many rules, okay, about 30 rules, in fact. And so we're not going to be looking at each one in detail, um, but we will see how they fit into three broad categories. Um, We've got laws of purity, uh, laws of compassion, and laws of justice. Okay, so you see where we're going today? We're going to be looking at all these laws in those three categories. So first of all, laws of purity, laws of purity. In chapter 23, verses 1 to 8, there are are laws there um, on who is permitted to gather at times of community worship in Israel. And we're told that there are three types of people who are banned from these assemblies of worship. Uh, First of all, we're told eunuchs are banned. They're not allowed to be a part of the worshipping community of Israel, probably either because um, they represent a distorted view of God's creation or or perhaps because castration was a feature of certain pagan religions in the surrounding cultures. But for whatever reason, eunuchs are prohibited from joining the worshipping assembly. Secondly, those born of a forbidden marriage are banned too. So that would include those born out of uh, wedlock, those born through incest, etc. Uh, they're all banned along with their descendants. And finally, certain foreigners, uh, the Amorites and the Moabites, they're banned too because they had been particularly nasty to the Israelites. But not all foreigners are banned uh, from joining the assembly of uh, God's people. And so, for example, the grandchildren of the Edomites and Egyptians, they are allowed to join the Israelites in their worship. So, you see, these are, these are the laws on the purity of the worshipping community. Uh, then in verses 9 to 14, we see rules about purity during military campaigns. Uh, soldiers need to keep themselves ceremonially pure while they're encamped against their enemy. And so if a a soldier has a nocturnal emission, he has to leave the camp for a day and and then undergo ceremonial washing before he's allowed to enter back in. And uh, likewise, for nighttime toilet trips, uh, there is to be a special place outside the camp to relieve yourself. And uh, then everything is to be buried. And uh, whilst I'm sure this particular rule had positive hygiene implications. I think primarily um, this practice was symbolic, uh, representing purity from sin. It was a reminder of the fact that God, who, who hates sin, was right there in the camp as he helped the soldiers 
fight his battles. He read with me from chapter 23, verse 9. 23, 9. When you are encamped against your enemies, keep away from everything impure. If one of your men is unclean because of a nocturnal emission, he is to go outside the camp and stay there. But as evening approaches, he is to wash himself, and at sunset he may return to the camp. Designate a place outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will not see among you anything indecent and turn away from you. Uh, Then there are other purity laws, including laws about not even allowing uh, a prostitute's money to enter into the tabernacle or or the the temple. And laws about uh, following the priest's instructions very, very carefully uh, if you were to get a, a skin disease. But what do, what do all these laws teach us about God? Well, obviously they, they show us that he is a pure God, don't they? That's what these laws teach us. They teach us that God is a pure God, one who refuses to let sin into his presence. The God who requires that the impure be cleansed and the one who clearly shows how that's to be done. That's the kind of God we see in these Old Testament laws. And so not surprisingly, the law, our our tutor, our pedagogos, points us to Jesus. Points us to Jesus, the pure and holy Son of God. The one who never sinned. The one who, who was clean, not just symbolically, but in reality. The man who embodied humanity as it was meant to be. And so the perfect worshipper. But these laws also reveal to us how we can now live lives that that please God today. Of course, God no longer calls us to practice external washings. uh, Nor does he exclude worshippers based on race or uh, the sexual sin of their parents. But these laws still teach us that we need to be pure if we are ever going to be in God's presence. And so these laws urge us to put our faith in Jesus through whom our impurity is cleansed, not just symbolically, but in reality. And these laws urge us to now take sin seriously in our lives, to to do whatever it takes to break free from the sin in our lives, to to live lives of purity. As it says in Titus chapter 2, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's us. And so you see, through the study of these purity laws, we catch a glimpse of who God is and we're prompted to run to Jesus who who makes this purity attainable for us through his death on the cross and then we're urged to live out that purity in our daily lives. 
The next broad category of laws in these three chapters is what I call compassion laws, compassion laws. And so, for example, look with me at chapter 23, verse 15. Chapter 23, verse 15. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand him over to his master. Let him live among you wherever he likes and in whatever town he chooses. Do not oppress him. Now, we've got to realise just how revolutionary, revolutionary this law was compared to the slave legislation that, that existed in the surrounding cultures. Usually, runaway slaves would have been punished severely as well as anyone who tried to harbour them. But here, we see God giving a law that essentially protects slaves, allowing them to run away from brutal masters. It's revolutionary. Then we have a law that says you aren't supposed to charge a fellow Israelite any interest when giving them a loan. And again, this is in stark contrast to what happened in surrounding cultures where apparently high interest rates were very common. Uh, Read with me from verse 19, chapter 23, verse 19. Do not charge your brother interest whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a brother Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. So you see, you can, you can charge foreigners interest, that's okay, but, but not fellow Israelites. And I'm, I'm sure it's a law protecting people from being exploited. Um, the rich getting richer at the expense of the poor. Then from verse 24, there are laws about what you can eat when you're in someone else's vineyard or grain field or olive grove. Apparently, you can eat as much as you want uh, while ever you're there. And I'm sure poor people loved this law. But they couldn't take liberties They they couldn't cart home huge quantities of produce, for example. See, that that wouldn't be loving to the owner, would it? It it was about being compassionate towards both the poor person and the farmer. Then in the beginning of chapter 24, there are laws about marriage. First of all, there are laws meant to protect women. And so a man isn't allowed to just divorce his wife and then take her back again when it suits him. He can't just treat her like some sexual football so he can, in essence, legalise his own adultery. No. She's to be protected, as is the sanctity of marriage. Then there's a lovely command about not sending a newlywed man off to war, but rather letting him spend a a year with his bride, uh, probably giving them the chance of starting their family. Uh, Then there are a number of laws concerning how you're to go about loaning things to people. In particular, there were rules concerning the security or the the, uh, the pledge that you might take from someone you're loaning money to. So, for example, you couldn't take a man's millstone as security for a debt uh, because that would be threatening his whole livelihood. I mean, how will he be able to repay his debt 
if he can't grind wheat and sell his flour. That, that, that would be a bit like taking away a taxi driver's taxi. And then when someone is getting you his pledge for a loan, um, we're told that you can't just barge on into his house to get it from him, no. Uh, you're told to just wait outside, let, let him go on in and get it and let him bring it out to you. In other words, you've got to give this man his dignity and, and, and respect the sanctity of his home. And if a poor person uh, gives you his cloak as a pledge for a loan and, and come sunset he still hasn't paid back the loan, well, don't keep his cloak all night. If he's poor, he's going to freeze. So just give it back to him. And if it's a poor widow, then don't even think about taking her cloak as a pledge in the first place. See, don't stand on your rights. Show compassion. Then there's a rule that if a poor person is working for you, then you've got to pay him at the end of the day, realising that he's probably relying on that money coming in. So don't delay payment. Then if you read on, you'll find other rules that seek to care for the poor and needy. So, for example, when you harvest your field of grain or you collect olives from your olive grove or you pick grapes from your vineyards, then don't worry if you miss a few. Don't worry about it. Just leave them there. Leave them behind. Leave them for the poor people to come and collect. They need them much more than you do. So you see, all of these are compassion laws. And what do they show us about God? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? They show us his heart of compassion. That he cares for all people but especially the poor and vulnerable. And he won't have them bullied. And of course, it's as we Christians read these laws that our minds can't help but think of of Jesus who exuded compassion. Jesus who healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, who fed the hungry and had pity on those who grieved Jesus who who gave up the glory of heaven. He died on a cross so that spiritually poor people like you and me could have eternal riches. Yeah, we read these laws and like a good tutor, they point us to their true significance in Jesus. But they also teach us how to live lives that please God today. Encouraging us to show compassion to all people and especially to fellow Christians. As it says in Galatians chapter 6, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And so is it okay for uh, Christians to charge interest today? What do you think? Well, for a long time, the uh, Christian church actually said no, believe it or not. 
In fact, it was only uh, in the Reformation in the uh, 1500s that a, a carefully qualified approval for charging interest was given. I didn't know that before this week. But surely, surely at the very least, these laws here in front of us force us to think very, very, very carefully about our business ethics, don't they? I think we've got to be very careful not to use our power to take advantage of others. I think that's the underlying principle here. And I think they encourage us not to be a people who stand on our rights, but a people who actually show compassion to others. Also, if you're an employer, pay your workers on time. If you, if you have a tradesman come into your house to fix something in your home, then, then pay him. Pay him quickly. He may be really counting on that payment. And while none of us probably have vineyards or grain fields or olive groves, I don't think, the fact is we can still set aside a portion of what we have for those who are less fortunate than ourselves, can't we? Giving to charities, for example. Stocking up the, the, the food bank that's up the back of the church there. And on the flip side, if someone is generously helping you, then, then you've got to be careful not to take liberties. Not to be greedy, not to take more than you need. And so, for example, if you find yourself on unemployment benefits, you should view that as a temporary measure, as you, as you seriously look for a job. And so, do you see, do you see how as we study these Old Testament laws and then apply them to ourselves through Jesus then we, we can see what it means to live compassionate lives. Lives that are pleasing to God. You see, these laws are extremely relevant for us as Christians. And then third and finally, we see in these chapters, justice laws. Justice laws. And so, for example, in chapter 24, verse 16, we read this. Look with me. Chapter 24, verse 16. 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. You see, what we have here is a law prohibiting, uh, prohibiting a, a court from punishing those who happen to be associated with a criminal. Uh, this is the, the basic legal principle of individual responsibility that, that we all take for granted. But back then, again, it was revolutionary. For example, the Hammurabites, the Hammurabites apparently had a law that if a, a builder built a house and that house fell down um, and, and killed the homeowner's son, they had a law that the, the builder of that house, his son, had to die. So this law of individual responsibility, it was actually way ahead of its time. And then there are laws about not depriving anyone of justice, even if they are an immigrant or an orphan 
On top of those, there are laws about how disputes are to be settled in court. Now, of course, the, the guilty person is to be punished, but his, punish, his punishment is to be measured. You know, it, it can't be cruel, it can't be without limit, it has to be measured. And then there is a law about not muz- muzzling an ox while it's treading out the grain. Uh, in other words, letting it snack as it works for you, because animals ought to be treated fairly too. Then there's another law about how if two men are fighting <laughs> and the wife of one tries to help her husband by grabbing hold of the other man's private parts, uh, she used to have her hand cut off. Can I hear an amen, fellas? <laughs> I think this law has to do with preventing that man from becoming like one of those eunuchs that we heard about earlier. See, if she does this, he may end up being banned from the worshipping community. You see how serious this is? And so even though she may be trying to protect her husband, she can't do this. It would be below the belt, so to speak. But proving the point that the end does not justify the means. The end does not justify the means. And then finally, we're told to use honest weights. Back then, weights were used in in trade and and, and you could make a weight heavier or or lighter than it was supposed to be in order to make a greater profit from whatever it was that you were selling or buying. But here, the law is about being honest in your business dealings. And so those are the justice laws. And I'm sure you'd agree they are wise and fair and they would have made life in the land so much better for everyone. And they're beautiful because ultimately they reflect the nature of God. The God whose justice was embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. The man who boldly chastised the Pharisees for their unjust practices. The man who overturned the tables of greedy exploitation in the temple. The man who willingly died on the cross, bearing the sins of the world that the justice of God might be satisfied. And the one who on the final day will justly judge all people, giving to each exactly what they deserve. Yes, we look at these beautiful laws of justice in the Old Testament and as our good tutor, they direct our attention to the beauty of our God and Saviour. But these laws also show us some principles by which we Christians ought to live today. Like the the unethical tax collector Zacchaeus came to realise after he met Jesus. He knew that he couldn't live his life of corruption any longer. And so he joyfully declared, look, Lord, here and now I I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Like him, we too are now called to make our past wrongs right. Now we're called to act honestly, to speak up about injustice, to stand up for what is right 
and good, to fight for the welfare of those who are vulnerable or marginalised, to treat all people, even criminals, fairly, to treat even animals fairly, and to never justify wrong actions on the basis that the end justifies the means. This is the kind of life that pleases our God. And you'll notice that it's only truly seen as we study God's Old Testament laws and allow them to teach us. So friend, I hope you see today. I hope you you see that these laws of the Old Testament, they're not like the terms and conditions of some software you download onto your computer. I hope you can see that that they're a great treasure and they're they're to be our delight. You know, praise God, praise God that we here today are not like that Sumerian man who lived all those years ago, that Sumerian man who lived in the dark. Praise God that he has clearly shown us who he is and how we can please him through his laws and through his son, ultimately. In his laws, we see just how pure and compassionate and just our God and Saviour is. And in his laws, we see what it means for us to now live lives of purity, compassion and justice, lives that please God. So, friends, let's never neglect the Old Testament laws, shall we? Rather, let's read them, let's turn to them often, and let's ponder them deeply. And as we do, may God's Holy Spirit teach us and change us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for your perfect laws. Thank you that in them we see who you are and what you're like and what you expect. As King David prayed in Psalm 19, Father, your laws are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Father, please help us as Christians to love your laws, just as King David did. Thank you that though we are no longer under the authority of the law, that it continues to point us to Jesus and how he marvellously embodied these laws of purity and compassion and justice. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, please help us now to be the people of purity and compassion and justice that you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.